I'm going to ask you if you have your copy of God's Word this morning. Let's turn together to Psalm 100. Psalm 100. Um, So those of you who are uh, guests with us this morning, we just finished last week uh, a study through uh, the book of Jude. Uh, I spent a couple of months there going through uh, those verses there in the book of Jude. And so coming up, we're getting ready to uh, start a new series in the book of Daniel starting next month. Um, But we had a few weeks here, and I always like to take a little break in between series. And uh, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was trying to decide what we would uh, look at over these next few Sundays uh, was just a renewed focus on who we are as a church. Now, every time when you come in, you receive a bulletin, and on that bulletin, it has the church name. And then underneath the church name, it has three words, higher, deeper, and farther. And that higher, deeper, and farther is really kind of our vision of what we want to do. And the higher means higher in worship, deeper means deeper in community, and farther is farther in mission. As a church, that's what we have decided, that that is our goal, that is our vision for this community, to go higher in worship, deeper in community, and farther in mission. All of that with an idea to do one thing, and that is to fulfill the Great Commission with a multi-generational ministry and obedience to Christ. This is what we are setting out to do, fulfilling the Great Commission with a multi-generational ministry and obedience to Christ. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to look at each one of those key components of that, higher in worship, deeper in community, and farther in mission. And so why is this important? Well, it's important for us to know really the, the who, what, where, when, why, and how of who we are as a church now, we want to know what it is that we're endeavoring to do. And now we know that we're seeking to be obedient to God, uh, but anyone who fails to plan, plans to fail. Uh, and so we want to have the same mindset. One of the things that we pray for uh, repeatedly in our services and in our prayer meetings uh, and in our Wednesday night gatherings is unity. And in order to be unified, you have to have a common vision and purpose and plan. And so we're going to look at this psalm this morning, Psalm 100. Because here in this psalm, really, we find such a beautiful picture of what it means to go higher in worship, what it means to draw closer to God and to who He is and to understand Him and in all of His glory and splendor. Because really, that's a key component of what it means to worship God, is that we must know Him and who He is. Now, this psalm is one that has been recognized throughout the history of the church as being an excellent psalm for praise. Uh, if you were to go back 100 or 200 years ago and you were to just walk into the church and say, let's sing the old 100th, everyone would have known what that meant. It was Psalm 100. That was the song that they would sing, and it was very commonplace in the church. Really, this psalm is an echo of what we find in Isaiah chapter 56, where the Lord says this, "'Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant.'" Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. And what a, what a joy it is to hear that, right? As the people of God, he says, I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. There's something about the worship of the Lord that leads us to joy in our own hearts. It's why it's so important for us as Christians. And this is what this psalm is laying out. It's laying out this beautiful picture of thanksgiving. And in fact, my Bible has a subheading. It says, all men exhorted to praise God. 
Brothers and sisters, worship is not an option for the believer. It's not something that we do if we want to do it. It is something that we are commanded to do. I love what Martin Luther had to say about this psalm. He said, quote, This psalm is a prophecy concerning Christ. It calls upon all to rejoice, to triumph, to give thanks, to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts and sanctuary with praise, because by the gospel and the preaching of the remission of sins, that kingdom of Christ is established and strengthened, which shall remain and stand forever. So if you found your way there, let's stand together as we read Psalm 100. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting, and His faithfulness to all generations. And you can be seated this morning. There are five components of worship that I want you to notice here in these verses, each one encompassed in each verse. The first one is joy. There should be joy in the worship of the Lord. There should be joy in the heart of the Christian. There's an attitude of worship that must be sought, must be obtained, and must be maintained. And it's found there in that first word. It says, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Now, we don't think a lot about shouting here, and the Lord is not demanding that every time we gather together that we're to shout. It's really more the attitude of the heart. That word shout there was the word that was used by the cry of the people when the king, when the sovereign would come into their territory. Now, it's a little far removed from us to think about this, right? Because we don't have this really kind of happening on a regular basis. Uh, but in the days of old, when the king would travel around, you know, they didn't have television to see the king all, all the time and to see his face and to hear what he would have to say. So the king would have to make visits to the various providences and cities that he covered. And when he was getting ready to come, the heralds would go forth and proclaim the arrival of the king. And so all the people in the village would gather there together. And when the king arrived, there would be this joyful shout, that their leader, their sovereign, their king had arrived and come to deliver to them a message. And brothers and sisters, we are to be the same. That when we come together and we worship God, when we worship God on our own, there should be an attitude of joyfully shouting and praising God. It's an attitude of thankfulness. It's an attitude of gratitude towards God for who He is. He is our sovereign. He is our Lord. He is our King. Spurgeon said that our happy God should be worshipped by a happy people. We should find joy in worshiping the Lord. Now, I might hear you say, well, I, I don't feel like worshiping the Lord sometimes. I think we've all been there. I think we've all been in a place where we don't feel like worshiping. And as I've said before countless times, it's exactly in those moments that we don't feel like worshiping the Lord that we need to worship the Lord all the more. There, there's something transformative to the, to the downcast heart when we begin to open up our mouth and sing praise to God. 
Because in our own strength, in our own weakness, we find ourselves sorrowful and weak and anxious and depressed. But when we open our mouth and begin to talk about who God is and what He has done for us, it, it does something. And I can't explain it. it. It does something in our own heart to hear those words coming out of our mouth. We could read them on the page. We can hear somebody tell those things to us. But to open our mouth and to say, God, you are good. Lord, you are faithful. You are merciful. You are gracious and kind, and your love and kindness is everlasting. You've promised to watch over your children. You've promised to keep. You've promised to protect. You've promised to, to do all that is necessary for those who love you. Something happens on the inside of us. It's a work of the Holy Spirit as we are filled with that joy. He says, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. The psalmist would repeat this in many different places. Psalm chapter 32, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Now, I don't know what you faced last week. I don't know what you faced over the last couple of months. I don't know what you've been going through. But I do know that if today you are in Christ, you have a king who has set you free from the bondage of sin. You have a king who has forgiven all of your sins, past, present, and future. You have a savior who loves you and cares for you and watches over you. You have a savior who promised that he will never cease to do that, and he will deliver you all the way to the end and keep you to the end. And not just that, but has promised you everlasting life and joy and happiness and peace in the presence of him forever in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, in light of that, we worship God. Brothers and sisters, there are moments where the things of this life seem to be greater than the joy that's in our heart. But let me promise you, the things that happen to us in this life pale in comparison to the joy that is available for us if we will worship and praise God. I thought just this past week of Fox's Book of Martyrs, and, and in Fox's Book of Martyrs, you have countless stories of men and women and children who were fed to the lions, tarred and feathered alive, put on the racks and stretched. And there's so many of those stories that talk about that as these people are being devoured by the lions or as the flames are consuming them and, and, the, and the flesh is literally dropping off of their hands, they're glorifying God. They're praising God. Why? Because it's in the moments of our deepest despair that we need to glorify God all the more. We shout praise unto Him. We worship Him and glorify Him because of who He is and what He's done for us. He says, shout joyfully unto the Lord. Isaiah chapter 42, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell on them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. The settlements where Keter inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Worship, it should be filled with an attitude of joy. But I want you to notice, secondly, here in this passage, when we talk about this joy, this, the attraction of worship, not just the attitude of worship, but the attraction of worship. It says, to the Lord. This is an invitation to come in and to worship, not just someone or something, but to worship the Lord. 
And it's important for us to understand this, that the point of what we are doing here this morning is not for us. It's not for myself. It's not for Pastor Wes. It's not for any of you in this building this morning. We are here to worship the Lord and Him alone. This is what flies in the face of, of so much of what has developed in modern evangelicalism where the church has become a production and a show in order to entertain the people that are there. And oftentimes pastors will talk about the idea of like, well, we need to figure out what we can do to attract people in. And brothers and sisters, I want people to come to our church, but I'm not so much worried about, or in fact, I'm not at all worried about what will attract people to this church. I'm worried what is going to bring attraction to the Lord. What is going to glorify him and honor him? Because we're here not to worship ourselves, and we're not even here to make ourselves feel better. We're here to worship the Lord because he is worthy to be praised. Now, brothers and sisters, he doesn't need us, right? He doesn't need us to worship him. He says if if the people won't cry, he says that even the rocks themselves will cry out. Creation itself will groan in worship of him. But it is our duty to worship him because he's the only one who deserves worship. He's the only one who deserves praise. Now, it's an an oft-repeated illustration, and I'm sure you've heard it before, but it's interesting to me how oftentimes people will come to church, and when it's time to sing, they might stand up and they might open their mouth, but their voices are meek and timid and they don't sing out. But just two days before, they were at the high school football game. And when that pass went down the field, and the player caught the ball, and he turned with it and began to run towards the touchdown line, they weren't standing in the stands going, oh, yay, I hope he makes it. No, they were screaming at the top of their lungs. They were passionate about what's happening. And our joy in who God is should lead us to that same type of passion in our worship. That when we sing, we sing with a loud voice. I don't care what your voice sounds like. And you know what? Neither does God. He doesn't care if you're off key or off pitch. To to, to, to the Lord of all the universe, to hear your voice sing loud is the most beautiful thing that he hears. Because it is his children offering praise and glory to him. There's only one deserving of worship. There's one God, one creator, one ruler of all. And we have been invited by God himself to come in and to worship him. He says, shout joyfully to the Lord. Now, we talk about the attitude, the attraction. I want you to also notice in this verse the arena of our worship. I love this, right? Because it says, shout joyfully to the Lord in the church building. Shout joyfully to the Lord on Sunday. Shout joyfully to the Lord when you are gathered together. It doesn't say any of those at all, does it? It says, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. This points to the understanding that it is the responsibility, it is the duty of all of the earth to worship Christ and to praise and glorify God. Now, right now, this is the work of the church because we are the ones who have been redeemed and set apart. It is our job to worship God, not just here on Sunday morning. 
It's interesting to me how in our culture now, people have this assumption that what we do as Christian people is relegated to church on Sunday morning. Because if you try to go out into the streets, you try to go into your workplace and talk about Christ or try to go out into the streets and preach, one of the common things that people often say to us when we're out on the streets is like, well, you should do this on Sunday morning. Well, we do. You're invited to come and check it out. But God tells us to worship the Lord all the earth. That means in every place. What we do here is not relegated to the four walls of this building. So now it is the job of the church that we are worshiping and glorifying God in every place, in every facet, wherever we may be. But in the future, because this psalm also points to the future, that there is coming a day when all of the earth will praise and worship God. And why will that be? Because it is the result of the obedience to the Great Commission. That if we are sharing the gospel, if we are preaching the truth of the gospel, that God's work will go forth into all the earth, and that people will be saved all over the earth. People will then be glorifying him. There is coming a day, and oh, how we long to see it, when all of the earth shall glorify and praise him. Albert Barnes, in his commentary, said, All lands are called on to praise him, all people to worship him as God. So this is our task What is laid before us is this idea that we worship, again, not for our own good. We worship to glorify him, but we also worship that all of the earth will recognize and see who God is. Every person on the face of the earth owes their existence to God. There's not one single person who can stand up and say, I did this myself. And if they owe their existence to God, they also owe their worship to God. But there are so many things that people worship outside of God. They worship themselves. They worship the world. They worship money, greed, sex, drugs. The worship that is due God, they give to any other thing outside of him. He calls us, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. I love what Matthew Henry said. He says, when all nations shall be discipled, and the gospel preached to every creature, then this summons will be fully answered to. This is one of those things, as, as in other parts of Scripture, where now we only see in part. Right? We can come together and worship the Lord as a congregation here at Barberville. We can worship the Lord in our homes, with our families. But as God continues His work upon the earth, there will be a day As Matthew Henry says here, when all the nations shall be discipled, when the gospel is preached to every creature, then all the earth shall glorify and praise him. So there's the joy, one of the characteristics of worship. Secondly, I want you to notice the next characteristic of worship is obedience. And it's found there in verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. I want you to consider first, when you talk about obedience, that what we do matters. Because he says, serve the Lord with gladness. Now, that word serve there means exactly what you would think it means. It's a call to obedience. Now, what's interesting is oftentimes when we think about worship, if you were to walk down the street and ask the average person, what is worship? Most people are going to talk about music. 
Now, they're just going to talk about the idea of singing. They're going to talk about the idea of, of what the music is like on Sunday morning. But here what the psalmist helps us to understand is that although singing is part of that, this joyful shouting, he says we should also serve the Lord with gladness. Because worship is not just a Sunday event. It's something that affects every area of our lives. And our lives, the way that we live our lives, are either an act of disobedience or an act of worship to God. How we live our lives is an act of worship to God. Now, this is in all areas. It's not just the things that we want to show and the things that we don't want to show. Every area of our life. That means the way we treat our spouse, the way we treat our children, the way we act at work, the way we act when we're out in public, the way we act when we're in private, our thoughts, our words, our deeds. Everything about our life, the psalmist calls us to, to serve the Lord with gladness. Our obedience is calling us to serve him. And we're to do this, he says, every area of our life given over to God, every area of our life, an attitude of worship. He says, and we're to do this with gladness. That's with joy, with pleasure. We're to serve not with dread, but with a cheerful heart. Have you ever met somebody who really loves their job? Maybe you go to a restaurant and you have a waiter who when they come out, they're just, their personality is just overflowing. And you can tell that they are excited about what they're doing. And they love what they're doing. It, it changes the experience of wherever you are to see somebody who is excited and passionate and joyful about what they are doing. And it should be the same way for the Christian. Far too often, we've met other Christians who seem dismally discouraged about their Christian life. Well, how are you? Oh, well, woe is me. You know, it just, I just, I just, it just couldn't get any worse. No, we should have joy in Christ. We should have joy. Well, remember the Apostle Paul? He's languishing in prison. Death is on the horizon. He's not even sure if he'll ever see any of his other friends again. And what does he write? He writes with joy. Praise be to God that I'm able to suffer for the cause of Christ. Don't, don't pray that I'm released. Pray that I have the opportunity to preach the gospel more. Why? Because this was an act of worship to Paul. He knew that every area of his life was an act of worship to God. So he was serving the Lord, not with dread, but with cheerfulness, with gladness. He said we should serve the Lord with this cheerful heart, with a glad heart. He says, come before him with joyful singing. God has called us in to his presence. It says, come before him. I want you to consider this morning what a privilege it is to be invited into communion with the one true and holy God. To be invited into such a relationship with him that he invites you into his presence to worship him. Remember what the psalmist said? I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. 
This should drive us to such a, a powerful place of joy and praise before God, to know that we've been invited into his presence. Now, it's again, it's something sometimes that we don't even consider and think about as modern Christians, because we don't have the context that the Old Testament believers did. In the Old Testament, the presence of God abided in one place in the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle. And they couldn't go there. They couldn't be in the presence of God. They couldn't talk to God directly. In order to talk to God, in order to have their request, they had to go through the high priest. And the high priest would take their request to God. So there was this layer of separation between the people and God. But when Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished, that veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, signifying now that as believers in Christ, we have direct access to God. If you could have gone back to the Old Testament and told those people wandering around in the wilderness that one day there will no longer be a tabernacle, there will no longer be a temple, there will no longer be a veil between you and God, they would have never believed it. And even if they did, they would have thought, how glorious. How wonderful would it be to be able to go directly into the presence of Almighty God? But far too often we take it for granted. That right now, wherever you're sitting in this room right now, right now, you could bow your head, close your eyes, begin to speak, and you are completely, you are, you are, are instantly in the presence of Almighty God. Your requests are right before him. He hears every single prayer that you hear, that you pray before him. He's called us into his presence. He's called us to worship him. So what we do matters because our lives are an act of worship. But also, he says, come before him, what? With joyful singing. So also what we sing matters. We're to sing songs of joy and praise before God. I would suggest to you this morning that the content of our music is very important. That when we sing songs, they should be focused around the person to whom we are singing. They should be focused on the glory and the majesty and the splendor of God. Now, I am not entirely opposed to modern music. We do modern hymns here in our hymn book that we sang out of this morning. But the difficult thing is that so much of what is considered modern Christian music today, if you look at the songs, and I'm not talking about how eloquent the singing is, I'm not talking about how catchy the lyrics are. I'm talking about if you just read the words on paper and you say, who does this song glorify? Who does this song focus on? Most of the time what you find is that it glorifies the individual. It's focused on the person and not God himself. So what we sing matters. We want to sing songs that glorify him and praise him. And just the very cry here, he says that we should come before him with joyful singing. We sing here on Sunday mornings, not just because it's tradition, but because the Bible tells us that part of the worship of God is to open up our mouths and to sing. It's going to be a part of what we do for all eternity. The Bible tells us that there's angels around the throne singing and glorifying God all the time. If you don't like singing down here, brother, you better get ready. Because that's all we're going to be doing up there. 
He says, come before him with joyful singing. I, I, was, I was just taken aback by this quote from Augustine. He's talking about the importance of this music and singing. He says, how freely was I made to weep by these hymns and spiritual songs transported by the voice of the congregation, sweetly singing the melody of their voices filled my ear and divine truth was poured into my heart. Then burned the flame of sacred devotion in my soul, and gushing tears flowed from my eyes as well they might. End quote. Have you ever turned on the radio? And you, maybe you're flipping through the dial on the radio, and you come across a channel, and you hear a song that you haven't heard, perhaps in 10 or 15 or 20 years. And the song begins to play, and, and immediately in your mind, perhaps maybe you remember the first time you heard that song. Or you heard the, remember the last time that you remember hearing that song. But now what's going to be amazing, though, is when the singer begins to sing, what can you do? You can sing along with that song, even though you've not heard it in 10 or 15 or 20 years. Because, again, there's something powerful about music. And I believe that God, according to the Scripture, has given it to us for this particular thing, that when we take the Word of God and the doctrine of God and apply it to music, it helps us to remember it. It helps us to have an easier grasp on those things and take it with us wherever we go. Augustine here was talking about the congregation singing, and I loved what he said. He says, as the melody of their voices filled my ears, the divine truth was poured into my heart. Well, what divine truth? The divine truth that was contained in the songs. That's why it's so important that the content of our music, the things that we sing, are things that are true, things that are uplifting, things that are right about who God is. Brothers and sisters, it is a necessity for us to sing because God has commanded it to do us. It's a necessity for us to sing because it is good for us as individuals to encourage our own spiritual walk. And it's a necessity for us to sing because it is an encouragement to others. As we stand here and sing on Sunday mornings, one of the greatest joys that I have on Sunday is hearing you sing. To hear the voices of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Because I know that not all of us in this room this morning are in the same place in life. Some of us are discouraged. Some of us are more joyful. Some of us are, are walking through tough seasons of life. But when we come together, we're all drawn into the same place as we sing and glorify God. Third thing I want you to notice, the third characteristic, is the intellect of worship. Maybe you didn't know that this morning, but worship is intellectual. Because again, we're not just talking about singing. We're not just talking about the songs that we sing. We're talking about the full encompassing part of what it means to worship God. Now look at verse 3. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The first thing we see here is that there's a knowledge about God that is necessary for worship. He says, know that the Lord himself is God. He's calling us as, as, as Christians, as believers, to understand who God is, to understand what God has done, to understand what he demands. 
Because if we're going to worship God accurately, we must understand him. We must understand who he is. We must know who he is. Now, how do we do that? How do we know about God? Is it just something that you wake up one morning and all of a sudden you have complete knowledge and revelation of who God is? No, it comes through a study of his word. This is why we hold to the importance of opening up God's word every single Sunday and expositing a text. It's why we consider the preaching part of the service to be the most important thing that we do as people because we cannot worship God the way we should in the other areas of our life if we do not understand and know who he is. We must study his word. God has given us his word in order that we may know him. So many different religions, their deities are vague and generalized in many ways. You can study and study and study, but never really know what that deity wants you to do. You could know everything there is to know about them, but you're still uncertain as to if you're pleasing them or not pleasing them. You're still uncertain as to whether they want you to do this or want you to do that. But if we study God's word, we find out everything we need to know about him. Everything pertaining to life and godliness has been given to us in his word. There is nothing that we need to know about God that is not found in this book. What an encouragement that is. If we study this, we will know everything that God intends for us to know about who he is. And that's what drives us to worship. Because when we understand who God is, we realize how deserving of worship he is. When we understand who God is, we realize how deserving of our praise and our honor and our glory that he is. But we must study God's word. This is the reason, again, why preaching is so it's an important thing that we focus on. And it's why expository preaching is such an important part. Maybe for those of you who are not familiar, there is a, uh, really two different types of preaching. There's topical preaching and expository preaching. Uh, Topical preaching is that where the pastor picks a topic, uh, whether it be parenting, uh, development, um, you know, uh, encouragement, and builds the sermon around the topic and then just finds a bunch of passages of scriptures that fit with that. Whereas expository preaching is where a verse of scripture is read and then the verse is explained in the context of the audience to who it was written to and an explanation of the doctrine that's contained within and then applied to how we take that and live it out in our own lives. Now, some churches do it differently. As a church, we typically go expositorily through a whole book of the Bible. We start at verse 1, chapter 1, and go all the way to the end. But now there are some churches. In fact, Spurgeon himself, one of the, probably the, one of the most famous expositors, was never in the same book from Sunday to Sunday. He was in a different book and chapter each week. But he preached expositorily. He opened up the text and explained the text. Because let me be clear this morning, you don't need my witticism. You don't need my opinions. And you don't need my thoughts on on a a current topic of encouragement for you. What we need is the Word. What we need is His truth and His understanding and His guidance for us. So he says we must have a knowledge about God. He says, know that the Lord Himself is God. Know that the Lord himself is God. Matthew Henry said, Knowledge is the mother of devotion and of all obedience. Blind sacrifice will never please a seeing God. 
We must know him. But we must take that knowledge and apply it to our lives. Because that's another avenue of worship. It's worship to, to, to know about God. It's worship. This is part of worship. What we're doing right now as the word is being preached is a part of worshiping God because we're declaring his truth. We're speaking his words. And it's worshiping God. But if you and I don't take what the word says and apply it to our lives, we're missing an element of worship. Because applying God's truth to our lives and living it out is another way that we worship him. This brings the question, why is this knowledge of God so important? Because how will the world know what God demands if we don't know what he demands? What did Jesus say there in Matthew chapter 28? Teach them all things that I have commanded you. In that passage, we oftentimes talk about going. We talk about the need to go, right? We talk about the need of making disciples. But Jesus says, you've got to teach them all the things that I've commanded you. So if we're going to be obedient to the Great Commission, if we want to see the world change for Christ, we must know who God is and what he expects. So there's a knowledge about God here, but there's also a knowledge about ourselves. It says, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. In spite of what the world says, we are not self-made people. You can apply that in a bunch of different ways. We didn't come from some kind of primordial ooze out of the depths of the sea and evolve over time into cognizant living creatures. But we're also not people who can do anything of ourselves. We can't make ourselves into who we want to be. You don't get to choose the family you're born into. You don't get to choose the life you have growing up. We're not self-made people. We are people who are entirely submissive to God. We belong to him and we utterly depend upon him. And it's not just believers who utterly depend upon God. Even those outside of Christ utterly depend upon God, whether they realize it or not, because it is he who causes their heart to continue pumping. It is he who causes their lungs to continue to draw in fresh air and exhale carbon dioxide. They are dependent upon him for their very existence. He said, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We have nothing to offer him. We have nothing to give to him. It speaks to the idea of humility and submission. When we understand that we cannot do anything for ourselves, we can't make ourselves, we can't keep ourselves, but it is he who has made us. And when we understand that it is he who has made us, it causes us this place of humility. To, to, to humble ourselves before God, to realize that he is the one who's totally in control. God has made us first as his creatures. We came into this existence on this earth by him forming us in our mother's womb, knitting us together, the psalmist says. But God has also made us his people in the second birth. We've been twice made by God. First, and before we were born, and second, in the newness and likeness of Christ. I want you to also notice not just a knowledge about God and a knowledge about ourselves here in this verse, but there's a knowledge about our position. It says we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. 
Not only has God made us, now here the psalmist tells us that we are his people. This is that demonstration, that moving there from the first birth where he made us, but now here's the second birth where we are his people. God has called us. God has chosen us. God has elected us unto himself. Remember what Paul says in Romans? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that they would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This passage speaks so clearly to the election and the calling of God for us. We are his people and he is our sovereign king. We do not get to do what we want to do, but we do what he wants us to do. We are his people. We belong to him. Not based upon anything that you've done, not based upon your goodness, not based on your pedigree, not based on your obedience. You belong to him because he has chosen you and called you unto himself. Before you did anything, as, as Paul would say uh, of, of Jacob and Esau, before anyone was born, before one had done anything or el- anything else, he said, Jacob, I have loved and Esau, I have hated. We are his people. Speaks of his calling. But look at this. It says, in the sheep of his pasture, because this speaks to his care. Because understanding these two things... Understanding and having knowledge that God has has called us unto himself, that we are now his people, and also understanding that he has promised to care for us, what does that do? It drives us right back to worship. Because we understand that we couldn't save ourselves. We understand that we were hopelessly lost outside of Christ, but now we're his. And he's going to care for us. One person interpreted this into this passage, not just the sheep of his pasture, but the flock of his feeding. It demonstrates his benevolence to us, his kindness to us. As a shepherd cares for his sheep, so too does the Lord for us. It's the shepherd's job to ensure that the sheep have everything they need. He's the one who guides them to where they need to go. He's the one who protects them from the enemy. He's the one who feeds them. Left to their own, the sheep would just fall into utter destruction. They can't do anything on their own. They need the shepherd. And it's the shepherd's responsibility to give each one of them exactly what they need. He he binds up their wounds. He shears the sheep to keep them clean from what they need to be clean from. He does everything for them. He does everything that they need. And here the psalmist tells us that not only are we his people, but we are the sheep of his pasture. What a blessed promise this is to us, that God is going to protect us from our enemies. God is going to provide for us the thing that we need. He is going to guide us and direct us in our lives. And what a reason this is to worship God, because we are His, and He is ours. I want you to notice the next characteristic of worship found in verse 4 is that worship should be demonstrated. 
Look at verse 4. It says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Worship should be visible. The psalmist here speaks of the, the gates and the courts of the temple. As I said earlier, the Holy of Holies was inside of the temple, then the building was around that, and then outside of the temple was what they called the outer court, and then there was a wall. Now, the outer court is where the people would gather for public worship during the time of worship. They weren't allowed into the temple. They weren't allowed, especially into the Holy of Holies. So they would gather there in the outer court. Now, to get to the outter court, you had to go through the gate. And then when you got through the gate, then you were there now in the outer court. So what this is, this is a, a call to public worship. It's a call to gathered worship. It says to enter into his gate. So this is talking about walking through that gate. It says with thanksgiving. This is thankfulness. Look and think about all the things that God has done for you in the last 24 hours. Think about all the things that God has done for you in the last week or the last year. And may I submit to you this morning that there is never a point in time where we cease to thank God for all the things that he's done. We don't just thank God and say, oh, God, well, I appreciate the fact that you did that for me five years ago. Um, we won't mention that one again. Why? Because all through the scriptures, what does God remind his people of? He reminds them of his faithfulness throughout the generations. What did the psalmist repeat there in Psalm 136 this morning? He went back through everything that God had done for the people of Israel, right? His love and kindness is everlasting. Why? Because when we go back... And we remember the things that God did for us last week, last year, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. It's that worship that drives us again to this confidence of knowing who he is and what he's promised he's going to do for us. So we enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. They would walk through the gates. Now they're here in the court with all of the other assembled believers and they're giving praise to God. They're worshiping and glorifying him. It was a public worship event. Why is this so important to consider? Well, because it's another thing that we, as a church, consider so important. Is that what we are doing right here is commanded by God. We are commanded to come together. The scripture says to not neglect the gathering of the saints, as so many do. So why do we worship on Sunday? Because God says, as Christians, we should gather together. And that doesn't have to be in, in a building that looks like this. In places around the world, they gather in somebody's home. There are places around the world they have to hide underground. But what's clear about the Scripture is there should be a time during the week when the body of Christ in that community comes together with a specific purpose to thank, be thankful and to worship God. It is our objective in our task. So worship should be visible. There should be a visible element to the community that they know that there's a place where God's people come together and that something serious is done here. Not only should worship be visible, visibly demonstrated, but it should be vocally demonstrated. It says, give thanks to him and bless his name. Now, we won't spend a lot of time on this because we've already kind of addressed it just in the other verse there in verse 2. But we are to give thanks to him and bless his name. And how do we do that unless we do it vocally? 
We can't give thanks to God and bless his name in the context of public worship unless we are doing it with our voices. Now, when the psalmist says to bless his name, that means to give praise and honor and glory to him. Because he has blessed us, we in turn bless him. And this blessing happens in all circumstances. When you got that job promotion and that pay raise, you bless the Lord. When that child is born, you bless the Lord. When all things are good, you bless the Lord. But you also bless the Lord in the difficult times. When that loved one dies, when the doctor walks into the room and says, I've got some bad news, when you lose your job, we bless the Lord. Because God does not cease to be good in those moments. He's always good. He's always good. So even in those moments, we do not cease to bless the Lord. We continue to bless his name. Why? Precisely because he is good. Because he is deserving of praise. Now, finally, I want you to notice the last element of worship. And it's the confidence that comes from worship. Look at verse 5. For the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. There's a provision that God gives to us in worship. It's a provision that we are reminded of here in this verse because it says, For the Lord is good. The Lord is good because he gives us all good things. Every good thing that we have comes to us down from the Father. And God is not just good in the sense of how we would use the term good subjectively here on this earth. God is goodness itself. He is the essence of all that is good. There's nothing on this world that is actually good in comparison with who God is. It it fails in comparison. Even the, the most kind, sweet, genteel person you could think of. The person who would be characterized by this world is good, is so far down removed on the spectrum from the true goodness of who God is. And if we think about that, and if we think about the kindest, most generous person that we ever met, and how good they were perhaps to us in a situation, and how thankful we are to them for maybe how kind they were. Maybe they gave you some money when you were were needing money. Maybe they watched your kids and and took care of you when when a spouse was sick. Whatever the thing may be, we look at that person and say, well, that person is a good person. Look at what they did for me, and I'm so thankful. I could never say thank you enough for what they've done. But then think about God. And think about the goodness that he has shown you. The goodness that you experience right here, even in this moment. And how much more he is worthy of our praise and our thankfulness and our glory. This goodness speaks of the character of God, that he's benevolent, that he's good, that he's merciful. But I also want you to see just the provision of worship, but I want you to also see the, the mercy of worship. Look there, his loving kindness is everlasting. That word loving kindness is oftentimes translated mercy. And it speaks of God's mercy towards his creatures. Mercy is something that you get that you don't deserve, right? You deserve something else, but God gives you mercy. You deserve punishment, but God says, no, I'm going to have mercy upon you. 
And what I love about the latter part of these two verses is that it says here that his mercy, his loving kindness is everlasting. That means it does not cease. You will not find an end to the mercy of God. Whether you live 40 years or 140 years. You're never going to come to a place in your life as a believer where you find the mercy of God exhausted towards you. God's mercy is everlasting. His loving kindness, His graciousness towards us does not cease to end. Finally, I want you to notice here in the idea of this confidence in worship, we also see that worship is timeless. It says, and His faithfulness to all generations. That word faithfulness speaks to the idea of his truth. The truth of God, his faithfulness about how he responds towards us, his people. It says it is to all generations. Psalm chapter 90, verse 1 tells us, it says, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. I love this because what this means is when we consider about the faithfulness of God, that there is not one promise of God that will be found to be lack or false. As we read through the truth of his word and read everything that he's promised, not only to the people of old, not only to us, but to people yet to come, all of those promises, the scripture says, are yes and amen. All of his promises will come true. From Adam to eternity, God is faithful to his people. There is never going to be a single moment on the face of this earth where God ceases to be faithful towards us, his children. Why is this so encouraging? Remember what I said there at the very beginning? I said that what we decided at a church, we want to fulfill the Great Commission through a multi-generational ministry. What does that mean? I'm not talking about the fact that we want a lot of generations here at the same time, which we do. And as I look around the room, I rejoice in the fact that we have kids as young as a couple of months old to those who are more senior in their age. That's a wonderful thing for a church to have. We want people of all ages here because we are all part of the body of Christ and we all have a work to do and we all encourage one another. But when we talk about a multi-generational ministry, what we mean is that the work that we're doing here as a church is not just for the here and now, but it's for the here and then. That what we're doing right now as a church, some of it we will see the effects of over the next week, over the next few months, the next few years. But some of what we're doing, even in this very moment, we will not see the fruit of until our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, if the Lord tarries his return. Multi-generations of ministry. And why is that encouraging? Because Jesus says here that his faithfulness is to all generations. It's easy for us to look around sometimes. I had a friend one time who said that that they didn't want their grandchildren to have more grandchildren because they were worried about the condition of the world and what it would be like for their kids to grow up in that climate. And I understand that fear, right? I'm a father. I have three kids. And I look around and see some of the things that are happening in the world, and it causes me to think about what's it going to be like in 10 years or 15 years? But the promise of this passage is, is that we don't have to fear about that. 
We don't have to worry about that because regardless of what happens in this world, God says his faithfulness is to all generations and his loving kindness is everlasting. If we go back and study church history, we're going to find that there were days in the history of the church that were much darker than even what we're in right now. And God never stopped being faithful. God never stopped showing his love and kindness and his truth. So as we look towards the future, let us not watch the news or read Twitter or Facebook and get discouraged about what God's going to do. Instead, we should anticipate great things that God is going to do in this world because it says his faithfulness is to all generations. He's not going to stop saving people. The glory of God is going to continue to be revealed upon the face of the earth, I believe, until more and more people come to the knowledge of Christ and we see fulfilled what he says here at the beginning there, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. So brothers and sisters, as we think about what we want to do as a church, let us never cease to praise him and let us collectively as a body in Christ, seek to go higher in worship. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this psalm, which over the last few weeks as I've been studying here, Lord, has, has really become one of my favorite psalms. Lord, what, what a short but doctrine-packed text that describes to us, Lord, the, the, the worship and the glory that you deserve. Lord, help us. As a church, we do not want to become isolated in our worship. We would not want to become self-centered in our worship, Lord, but we do. We want to go higher in worship of you. Lord, we want to, to just know you in deepness and in truth and in, in reality. Lord, we want to worship you, as the Scripture says, in spirit and in truth. Lord, we want to worship you in all of the glory that we can muster in our own sinful selves. Lord, ev- giving you everything that we can and that you deserve. So, Father, guide our hearts. Help us to spend time in your word to know you, that we may worship you more fully. Lord, give us the encouragement in our hearts, God, to open our mouths and to sing praise to you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.